0: Once upon a time, there were millions of businesses struggling. Every day they wasted time, effort and money on repetitive tasks that added no value. One day, the Better Automation podcast by Processio came to help them see the way. Because of this, these businesses save time, reduce costs, innovate, and make better decisions. Because of that, these businesses grow, scale, prosper, and use human creativity to change this world. Hello, my name is Aziz and I'm your host at Better Automation podcast by Processio where I interview the world's top experts and share their best ideas on how to improve your automation in your business processes and life. My guest today is Jason Greenwood. Jason is a digital native with deep omni channel co- commerce expertise, B2C, B2B, DTC. He helps brands through their e commerce, omni channel and digital transformation journeys, fusing the core tenets of online success, traffic, conversion, and customer lifetime value with broader solutions that encompass teams, business goals, systems, processes and integration automation. Jason, how
1: are you today? Thank you very much. It's awesome to be here with you and and to share my story and hopefully help your audience uh, get some benefit out of it. I'm sure
0: it will be a wonderful conversation and let's begin with the past. What is your story? How did you find really how you can add the most value in this world or in business, as well as how much did your skills or abilities to understand processes and automation contribute to that?
1: Look, I I came to be in e-commerce and digital almost by accident. Uh, I actually had a, a mutual friend that had a friend of, of hers who was working in the industry. He owned an e-commerce agency. You know, I've, I've been doing this for over 20 years. So this is going back to the very, very early days of the industry before before there was any automation. Before, this was at a time when everything to do with e-commerce and digital was super painful, super expensive, super time consuming. Just that it was a very difficult time to be in this space. And he owned an agency that was doing implementations, uh, both from a e-commerce development perspective and and an e-commerce marketing perspective. And uh, our mutual friend introduced us. I was between jobs at the time, and he said, "Why don't you come?" He he happened to be American. I'm American myself, even though I live in New Zealand. And he he was also American, living in New Zealand. And and he said, "Look, why don't you come work with me? This is a fast-growing space." And and I was already into technology. I was already using the internet, and I was I already sort of saw where this internet thing was headed. But I almost fought, fell into the industry and and uh, so I went to work for him and worked for him for just over a year, started a side hustle which was an online e-commerce business with a, with a good friend of mine in the meantime at the same time and uh, eventually that business grew to the point where we both quit our full-time jobs and we, we worked in that for the first uh, seven, eight years and um, that's how I got my start in the industry.
0: I really love that. And it's a really inspiring story. I love when people find their path and their niche that where they can make a real difference. So to ask you, and I know you do a lot of things, but what what, but when it comes to integration systems, creation and automation, What do you offer people that seems to be the most common need or pain point that they come to you wanting to solve or something you discover by analyzing or understanding their needs that they find valuable, even if they didn't see it themselves in the beginning?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of clients that I work with, they don't realize that today's systems can be largely integrated and automated, particularly if they're running SaaS platforms, I mean, the the SaaSification of the world, the APIification of the world has started to take over, you know, all, almost all software, actually, regardless of vertical that that software operates in. And particularly for e-commerce, you know, SaaS over the last five to 10 years, almost every major platform has moved to a SaaS model or the, the platforms that have taken the lead in the space have tended to all be SaaS platforms. So whether we're looking at E-commerce and Shopify, big commerce, Salesforce Commerce Cloud, Vtex; those are all native SaaS platforms with open APIs. Whether we're looking at CDPs, PIMs, point of sale systems, marketing automation, um, whether we're looking at uh, warehouse management systems, order management systems, pretty much every leading piece of software in the space now—not uh, hundred percent, but but getting pretty close—are SaaS native SaaS platforms now, and those SaaS platforms. Because the infrastructure is built out by the vendor, the way in which you connect to those platforms is via APIs, API connectivity. And so those platforms really lend themselves to integrating with each other and sharing data with each other. And so whether you're using standard middleware or whether you're doing point-to-point integration between those systems, they really are designed out of the box to talk to other systems and use common language and common data formats, um, you know, such as uh, JSON and XML, etc. And so they're using, they're using very common um, linguistics to speak to each other and share data with each other. And so a lot of brands, they don't, they still, to this day, they don't really understand that that's the case and they don't fully understand the technology behind that. They don't understand, uh, you know, that these systems were designed from the ground up to be automated and so when I go in and I first start talking to these businesses and I look across their organization and we see a whole lot of manual steps, a lot of manual processes, a lot of double handling of data, a lot of cutting, cutting and pasting of data across systems. Um, you know their their eyes light up when you start to share with them some of the things that we can do through modern automation automation tools, through modern integration platforms, even even using tools as simple as Zapier to connect. Certain systems together, um, you know, I, I don't I don't work with Zapier personally, but but you know, there's a lot of systems that have Zapier connections, and they're pretty much plug and play for for even small businesses. And so, when you start talking to businesses about what is possible as of 2022 in terms of automation, specifically process automation, it really does blow their mind, and it starts to open up uh, their mind to to really how they can start to redeploy internal resources to value add actions within the business and and value add actions for their clients as opposed to doing these manual processes that add no value to anyone and just have a huge cost associated with them
0: i love that especially that i re- i'm really aware of the value that what you said, its changing and redeploying resources to value added things to say it in simpler terms, well, people were doing repetitive tasks, their time now will be free to do things that are much higher value, the things that bring in the money or the things that only a human being can do as well as well, the processio who is like creating this podcast one of the uniqueness about them and they're competing in this space is that anything that you can create an API for even if it doesn't come with that it can be it can be integrated into a workflow there are some um, things that are not SaaS like you said or don't have a native API well you can have someone or even your own legacy or unique proprietary software. If you create an API for it, you can uh, add it into a workflow for automation. And since you have a lot of experience in this domain, is there a project or something that you have been involved with, where the ROI on automation has been so significant that you're proud of it or it's something a unique case study and use case for automation that you still remember until today and think wow that was that stood out from all the other projects
1: yeah look there's many almost every single project has significant uh, integration and automation associated with it nowadays there's very very few e- e-commerce projects or even broader commerce stack projects whether that be ERP, CRM, doesn't really matter the system. Basically, once you start integrating those systems together, you you bring efficiencies to the table. But this is going back to the days when I was still working uh, as an e-commerce manager with a merchant. And so I was e-commerce manager for HealthPost. And, and by implementing a brand new warehouse management system and integrating that with the broader ecosystem, so we integrated the warehouse management system with both the ERP and dispatch and logistics systems. And what that did, we, we implemented, um, as part of that system, it had the concept of chaotic put-away. And chaotic put-away is a methodology of organizing your warehouse, physical warehouse space, uh, using basically AI and machine learning to put products away in a non-human understandable way. So if you're manually organizing your warehouse, for example, then you have to organize your warehouse usually by maybe a category is on a specific aisle, or maybe, maybe products are organized by brand and alphabetized, or you have to organize your warehouse in such a way that humans can understand when they go, when they receipt products into the warehouse, they have to go and put them away in a place that when they go to retrieve them for pick, pack, and dispatch, that they understand where to go looking for a product that's on the pick list. Whereas with a warehouse ma- modern ma- warehouse management system like we implemented that does chaotic put-away, it knows all the tiny little holes and gaps throughout the entire physical warehouse of where Inwards goods can be located. And it it, it doesn't need to organize it in a way that it understands because it knows down to the physical point of location in that warehouse where every single unit of every single item is located and by use by shifting from a manually organized warehouse to a machine organized warehouse there was over an over 20% improvement in warehouse space utilization so instead of having to keep spaces free uh, even though even though there may have been a gap in the warehouse if you manually organize the warehouse you need to keep spaces free for products that, that live in that space. So if, if you have an alphabetized warehouse, for example, you have a product with a specific brand name, and it lives in this in this cubbyhole, well, even if you're out of stock of that product, you have to keep that gap free, because when that comes back into stock, it has to go back into that, that slot. Well, with Chaotic Put Away, that doesn't have to happen. Products can go anywhere, and the machines always know, and it directs you where to put those away, where it knows there's a gap suitable to fit that product and we we achieved an over 20 percent improvement in space utilization by going to chaotic put away and, and automation and then we also uh gained a significant uh amount of throughput improvement at the pick pack and dispatch tables by having automation basically and through carousels automated carousels bringing products from the back of the warehouse instead of being walked to the front of the warehouse. Being brought by carousel to the front of the warehouse and being dropped off directly next to the pick pack dispatch stations so that people could grab them directly off of the carousel and so this is the type of automation that and data workflows and you know using ai and machine learning these are the types of automations that can dramatically improve space utilization throughput uh, employee performance and also employee i guess satisfaction out of their jobs you know instead of having people you know, walking you know, 50, 100, 200 meters from the back of a warehouse to the front of a warehouse 100 times a day, we now have automation that brings stuff from the back to the front and sends it to the exact person that needs to do the actual uh, packing of that particular order. And so you're, you're, you're putting people in a place where even what would traditionally be considered a relatively menial task in a warehouse you're you're freeing them up to do this stuff that really only humans can do at this particular point in time. Now in the future, uh, pick pack and dispatch may be you know and and obviously with Amazon there's a lot of automation in their warehouses, but in smaller privately owned warehouses you know they're not 100 automated yet, and so you still have human beings doing certain things. But if we can if we can make them more efficient at what they do, and we can take away the most nastiest, hardest, most Uh, human unfriendly tasks away from them, and we can give those to the machines. And we can do the stuff that is at least somewhat more fulfilling, um, and more efficient at the same time, then it kind of benefits everyone.
0: Thank you. I love what you're saying. And at the same time, some of the listeners might be wondering at which stage do e commerce companies? um, Will they be most able to take advantage of what you offer? Uh, what when do you recommend they begin to use such like integrations, automations, AI and things that will make a big difference to such uh, larger warehouses? Well, at which stage should they begin looking into that?
1: Look, I think you you, you it does it does it probably does it probably matters less what say for example, revenue level that they're doing and it probably matters more uh, what level of profitability they are at, because you, know, you can have businesses that are doing multiple millions of dollars a year in revenues, uh, but they might be operating on razor thin margins, and they just don't have the profit to reinvest into technology, to reinvest into automation, to reinvest uh, into integration, and so, uh, it really comes down to, I guess, how much free cash flow they're throwing off. But usually, so let's just take, you know, let's just take a margin level of, of say, fifty percent. And let's just, a lot of businesses aren't doing making fifty percent margins. But let's just say you're making fifty percent margins. And so you're, you're, let's say you're doing, you know, um, I don't know, let's say you're doing two million dollars a year worth of revenue. And so you're doing, you know, have a million dollars a year in profit. Um. And that's after that's after not only, you know, paying for staff and, and all the other things. So so we're talking net profit here of a million dollars. Then at that point, you're probably gonna be able to reinvest a significant portion of that back into the business in terms of, of upgraded software to where, you know, if you're if you're a largely manual operation today and you're making a fifty percent net margin, well if we can automate another twenty percent of the cost out of the business well that is a direct 20 percent contribution to the bottom line so now you might have a 70 percent net margin so when we go in and we do uh, you know business analysis on any specific project one of the things we look at is okay what is the what is the roi on this project what is the return on investment and what is the time to value so how quickly can we implement it meaning how quickly can it start adding value to the business and what is the roi and you can think of ROI through multiple lenses, and this usually requires a bit of spreadsheeting to get right, but you can think about, okay, how many human beings getting paid X dollars an hour, getting paid X dollars a year, how many humans are we eliminating from this menial task that we can we can uh, improve our efficiency, and therefore we know how much money we're going to be saving, how much efficiency we're adding, and therefore how much you know dollar value we're adding to the bottom line. So there is a process of business analysis and business case creation for just about everything that is done in our industry. But then there are also some times where uh, they are table stakes. So there's certain things in our industry that are considered table stakes nowadays. And when you start out as a business in our space, if you aren't starting kind of at that minimum level, then you're not going to be competitive even from the start. And so there are certain things that you have to do whether you want to or not just to be viable. And so if you're bootstrapped then you need to have enough cash to get you through that initial runway of getting up and up and running. But the the thing I'd like to say here is that there's a lot of out of the box tools, apps and integrations that don't necessarily require a lot of customization to make happen. And we can think of something as simple as the Shopify App Store. We can think of some integrations with some third-party platforms that they have apps from those third-party systems that plug into Shopify. Pretty much you install the app, it connects to the third-party system, let's say it's a logistics system or a 3PL provider system or, or, and the like, and or it's marketing automation or whatever, And these automations and these integrations, they take virtually zero effort from the brand to implement. Now, there are custom integrations sometimes that are required, but there are a lot of -of out-of-the-box things that happen in our industry now that the ecosystem has built out over the years between common systems. So let's just take uh, ERP. So NetSuite, for example, is a very common SaaS ERP used by many, many e-commerce and omni-channel businesses. Well, those other third-party systems that need to connect to NetSuite and and NetSuite needs to connect to, there's a lot of suite apps in the app store for NetSuite that connect to those third-party systems out of the box. So, you know, it really does come down to does it require custom integration, yes or no? Does it have an out-of-the-box integration, yes? Well, if it does, then pretty much just plug it in, do a little bit of configuration, and we're off to the races. So we try to look at the difficulty of adopting automation and integration into any given system or any given process and that helps to form the foundation of the business case for for introducing that integration.
0: Thank you that's absolutely fantastic and I love what you're speaking about which is what already is. Let's speak about the future and the next trends that maybe some are jumping ahead of them and they're uh, having some competitive advantages because of that. Where do you see the next big moves or differentiators or trends in the e commerce space? You mentioned a little bit AI and machine learning, maybe there are other things that someone who's either active in the e commerce space or is jumping into there should be aware of them so that they don't get into an old way of thinking and Uh, being that might not serve them any longer. So what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, there's there's one piece of technology in the modern commerce stack that is becoming much more common and getting a lot more airtime because of the structural changes that are happening to the e-commerce space, and that is the CDP, so customer data platform technology space. That is accelerating incredibly rapidly. I've seen such growth in this space over the last 12 months. It, It surprises even me sometimes. And I think there's two pieces that are fueling that fire. There's two two things that are happening structurally in the industry. One is privacy, um, you know, quote unquote privacy happening with iOS and and the, the reduction in app tracking capability combined with the death of third-party cookies, which Google is forcing on the industry and is going to happen very soon, where the death of third-party cookies in, in browsers like Chrome is, is going to be the norm. And so... The ability for brands to track customers from the point of, say, a campaign, whether that be paid or organic, and a customer coming through a website, going through a customer journey, buying, maybe doing a a product return at some point, interacting with customer service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, maybe interacting with a physical store, plus interacting with an online store, plus interacting with a marketplace that the brand might sell on. There is so much data that is available uh, about your customers, but you have to have a automated way of gathering, organizing that data, storing that data, and then creating actionable insights from that data. And CDPs are uniquely positioned to do exactly that. They are designed specifically to do exactly that. They are designed to ingest data from multiple systems, whether that be an ERP, e-commerce website, a point-of-sale platform. Uh, they, they are designed to ingest data, customer data and transactional data from multiple systems, to crunch that data, to join the dots between the two, to understand those connections between the two using AI and machine learning, create both automated and custom segments of those customers for use across things like Google ads, Facebook ads for retargeting, remarketing, as well as cohort creation and going out and and acquiring new customers that look like quality segments of existing customers, plus being able to remarket to customers via marketing automation and email, and text marketing, etc., cetera, based on those highly granular, highly profitable segments that are being crunched and created by the CDP platform, that has become a almost a must-have in the modern commerce stack, and that wasn't true even, even 12, 18, 24 months ago. That was not true, but the amount of discussion that's happening in the marketplace now with, with almost every major brand it is becoming a very very big thing because it is it is increasingly impossible for a human being even using spreadsheets etc to do the type of number crunching and the type of of you know business intelligence that you know using something even like power bi brands are having to spend huge amounts of time and huge amounts of money setting up the tooling and the the rule sets inside of power bi even if you're plumbing all of your data into power bi to do the same level of work that most CDPs do relatively easily out of the box. And so we're, we're seeing bespoke, you know, built for purpose, purpose-built systems like CDPs being plugged into the commerce stack to meet very, very specific needs of the market at, at a very specific time and the pressure on brands to understand their customers better, understand their customer lifetime value, uh, you know, understand uh, their cost to service of those customers across specific channels, to be able to understand the behaviors, the very granular behaviors. Say, for example, a customer shops across two of your physical stores on a regular basis, and shops online with you on a regular basis. But their profitability in it when they shop in one given store versus the other store versus online. If you don't understand what their what their CLV customer lifetime value is and their average order value, for example. Their returns costs, you know, hey, do, do they return more when they buy online versus when they buy in a store? Do they spend more when they shop in a specific store versus another store? Unless you can understand these things and unless you can understand what the levers are that you can pull with that customer to get them to continue to take the most profitable behaviors possible with your business, without that data and without the understanding of that data, you can't do any of those things. And you can't service that customer in a very personalized one-to-one way. And so this is an example, CDP is just one example of technology that has come to the market that automates a whole lot of these processes of bringing insights, actionable insights to the surface for a business that they can immediately act on. Um, That technology is automating that entire process, whereas it used to take pretty much a data analyst, a data scientist working in something like Power BI to be able to bring these insights to the table. And of course... Data analysts and data scientists are very expensive people, very expensive humans, whereas with a modern CDP, someone that's pretty capable from a marketing team, for example, can do all of the same things, uh, plus other roles within a marketing team. They can do all of that um, using a modern CDP, and they don't have to necessarily have to have any crazy specialist skills to be able to achieve massively beneficial outcomes for a business. So that's one example. Thank you. And at the
0: same time, as someone who deals with entrepreneurs a lot, it seems like what you're saying is the death of small niche based brands, where the big brands will get that data on those very granular needs and create such small um, products that satisfy those small segments worth staying profitable. And therefore, what are your thoughts about what has been happening for many years, which is that there are some lifestyle brands that come and they're like, we serve this really, really micro niche, and we'll be the best at it. And we will take our share from it. And big brands don't have the time, the energy, the information or the uh, thought about the possible profitability of these small granular, granular segments because they're too small for them. Are you saying that now because of those CDPs and all that information, brands will compete in, within those smaller granular pieces. And therefore, the hobbyist or the small entrepreneur has no There will be you know, like the mom, uh, uh, the mom and the pop and mom shops when Amazon came or when any of the bigger brands is this a correct understanding
1: yeah i think there's two pieces to this one is that there's probably always going to be room in the market for small nimble niche competitors that are servicing that are identifying and servicing a need that is probably too small at least in the beginning for competitors like amazon and the other major retailers to even pay attention to you know when Amazon decides to take over a new category and by take over, I mean own it and sell directly in competition with third-party sellers on their own platform and, and maybe even come out with a white-labeled brand product in that vertical or that category, you know that category has to be a, a pretty much a billion-dollar category for Amazon to look at because it just doesn't... In order for them to move their share price, they have to increase their revenues by such a substantial amount that it causes investors to pay attention, right? And so when they talk about new categories that they want to enter, they're talking about categories like healthcare, you know, multi-billion dollar industry, right? And so the massive players just don't have the desire or the ability to attack micro niches, uh, you know, at least at the start. Now, small businesses turn into medium businesses, which turn into big businesses, which turn into acquisition targets. That's... That's the typical pathway, right? So you have these tiny businesses, you know, and I'll use, you know, my wife, her sister has started one of those very small online only businesses, pure play online business. It's called Boba by me, which is a, a Boba tea kit, re- retailer. They sell online pure play online business. And she she has, uh, She's a basically like a, a manufacturer. Effectively, she she buys in the products from overseas, but she um, but she assembles these kits. So you can think of her almost like an assembler. Assembles these kits, puts them together. She's got a very strong brand. So the design aesthetic, it's very beautiful, and she ships ships these boba tea kits to her customers, uh, to her end customers all around the world. And this is a, a, and she's doing very, very well for herself. Now it's still a small business. Don't get me wrong. It's still a small business, but she's only been operating for like six months. So, you know, and, and it's very fast growing because it's a niche that someone like Amazon or even the major retailers, they just never touch this kind of niche. But my wife, my wife is Asian and, and obviously her sister is Asian and shows she understands this niche and the type of customers that she would be targeting or if she is the type of customer that she would be targeting. So she is part of her community. She is part of uh, that demographic that she is targeting and that that she's been very successful in because she speaks their language. She is one of them. And so when she's interacting with her audience on platforms like Instagram, for example, almost everything she does resonates strongly with them because she is creating content that she would like to consume as a consumer. And so I think there's always going to be space for these small brands, but once they turn into a medium brand, if they continue to see success and then they, and then they get to a place. So I, I work with, with primarily B2B and D2C brands that are doing say minimum of $3 million in revenue or more. So they've found a level of success. They're not a massive company yet. $3 million is not a massive business. That's still a a medium sized business by, by almost any standard, but they, by, by the time they've reached, they're starting to think about scaling once they get to about $3 million worth of revenue. And they have the resources to be able to execute on the type of recommendations that I'm able to bring to the table to take them from $3 million to $300 million, right? And so that's where I can start bringing a lot of value based on my experience to help them hyperscale, right? Um, up until that point, that's why I produce a lot of free content because those business those small businesses like my wife's sister they they need the help that they can't necessarily afford, right? And so I put out content literally every single day for those small businesses from $0 worth of revenue to say $3 million worth of revenue, they will get massive benefit out of the content that I put out that covers off a lot of the more basic stuff that will allow them to get from 0 to 3 million. And so uh, to answer your question, I know it's a long answer, but I think there's always going to be an opportunity for these micro niches to grow and to service customers in a very personalized way. And once they get to that, they'll probably get bought and acquired by maybe a, a larger company and a larger company and a larger company. And then once that category gets large enough for the biggest retailers to actually have an interest in, then they'll just either get acquired or they'll start a competing brand, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's always going to be the category creators and the category definers. And that's usually starts with with a small business of some variety.
0: Thank you. And that makes me even more curious. So you have a lot of wisdom and experience and expertise in e-commerce. So if anybody from the listeners would like to learn more about Greenwood Greenwood Consulting if they want to know more about the fit for commerce framework can you share more about that as well as the best places for them to go to consume your free content to get in touch with you and i will write some of those links in the description of course
1: absolutely well i'm i'm pretty much everywhere if you just google my name Jason Greenwood you'll pretty much find every channel that i'm on but Uh, where I publish most of my content to or where I'm most active is on LinkedIn. So if they go and follow me on, on LinkedIn, then they'll get, you know, pretty much almost every single day I publish content. And even when I produce content on other channels, I'll usually post it back to LinkedIn. I've got also got my podcast, which is the At The Coalface podcast, and it's on a, on every single podcast engine. So you could just search At The Coalface podcast, and, and you'll be able to find that, and you'll be able to follow me. I put out a new episode every single Thursday morning, New Zealand time, put out a new episode, and I get to interview people across the e-commerce, omni-channel, and retail tech space, and, and put out a lot of content of my own as well. And then of course if they if they you know have an interest in potentially engaging with our business and, and our consultancy, then they can just go to greenwoodconsulting.net and they can see everything about how we engage and the services that we offer and how we and how we do it. And we try to be very unique. So we we do something, we, we basically have a consulting as a service. So it's almost like a SaaS platform for, for consulting. So we, we do it on a subscription basis. And that's a really unique engagement model that doesn't really exist. Uh, I'm not aware of any other consultancy down here, at least in A and Z, that does it the way we do it. So go and check that out. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to have a discussion. You know, DM me, DM me if you like, on LinkedIn, and we can have a chat.
0: Thank you, Jason. It was an honor and a privilege. And for all the listeners as well, I want to share. That there is a possibility for them to request access to get a free account at processio.com. Where processio is within this automation community, a new competitor, a modern low code, no code platform for advanced automation and creating an enterprise grade backend for your software. So check the link in the description. It's a privilege and honor. And I wish you a wonderful day there in New Zealand. And to continue to help people because the work you do really provides livelihood, gets the customers what they need, the those segments and granular um, personas that wouldn't be served while you're helping them get served. And that's really wonderful. Thank you very much.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. And I look forward to uh, maybe being on another time.